Welcome back to the Groundless Ground Podcast, the leading edge of mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. Remember, you can now subscribe to and download the Groundless Ground on your favorite podcast app or listen on YouTube, Spotify, and TuneIn. Cortland Dahl exemplifies a rare mix of contemplative and scientific talent. He is a longtime Buddhist practitioner, scholar, translator of Dzogchen and Mahamudra Tibetan Buddhist texts, and meditation teacher. Court has served for many years as the main translator for Minja Rinpoche and is the co-founder of Tergar International. He tells us the unusual story of how he and Minja Rinpoche met. Over the last seven years, Court has completed a PhD at the University of Wisconsin Center for Healthy Minds, focused on the psychological and neural mechanisms of different families of meditation practices. In addition to his continuing work at Tergar, Court currently serves as Chief Contemplative Officer at Healthy Minds Innovations and is the creator of the Healthy Minds Program, a well-being research and training program that integrates insights from science with a comprehensive path of contemplative training. Court, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the Groundless Ground podcast. I am extremely excited. You're one of my Buddhist teachers, as well as somebody I admire tremendously in terms of the neuroscience research work that's being done in meditation. Maybe we would start by having you just tell us how you became interested in Buddhism in the first place. You have such an interesting path. Yeah, I'd be happy to, and it's quite a circuitous path. Well, I started meditating when I was in my late teens. I was at uh, the University uh, of Minnesota, which is where I did my undergrad work. It's quite interesting, actually. I remember in my freshman year, I, I took some class, some intro to religions class, and I picked Buddhism as the religion that I wanted to write a paper on. And I remember being at the library and getting some academic type book, and I wrote some report. And the only thing I remember is that it made no connection with me whatsoever. I didn't feel any draw to it. I didn't feel like, wow, this is fascinating. I want to learn more. I don't know if it was time or me at the time or the book or whatever it was, but for whatever reason, it didn't really hook me at that time. So that was when I was 18, maybe a year later or so. I was still at school, obviously, and I actually was starting to have a lot of anxiety. I had a lot of social anxiety in particular. In fact, it's always been the irony of my life that I do a lot of public speaking because at the time, public speaking completely freaked me out. That was the thing that just totally threw me into a tailspin, even thinking about it. I was also very curious, kind of intellectually curious, reading a lot of things, reading psychology and philosophy. And I read another book on Buddhism, this time not an academic book, uh, but a book called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, which I know you're familiar with. Something just awoke in me in reading that. And in particular, it was reading about these people, the, the author's teachers who he talks about and tells all these colorful stories. For me, that really spoke to me. And it was this idea, not only that there were these people that seemed to really embody wisdom and compassion and just their presence leapt off the page, but also that there was a path. There was something that you could actually do. It wasn't just there were these remarkable people somewhere in the world, but they were that way because they had trained their minds. It wasn't an accident or they weren't just born that way. That completely got me hooked. And from that point on, I just was reading everything I could get my hands on. I started meditating on my own. Being the introvert that I am, let's see, that was probably 1993. I never connected with a teacher or a community or any real guidance for probably seven years. 
And I was meditating like twice a day, every day, reading everything, no clue what I was doing other than just whatever I could glean from books. So the downsides to being an introvert, those early years, I think were a really special time for me because it was just this, this time of exploration, no expectations. It was nothing but my own passion and interest uh, that, that got me started. So at what point in your engagement with Buddhism did you decide to become a translator of classical Tibetan Buddhist philosophical and practice texts? Based on what I just heard, I've yeah. been more blown away, actually. I feel like my whole life is a series of accidents because I never decided to be a translator, actually. I went to Naropa University. You know, when I was an undergrad, going back to that period, I was studying psychology. So that was also my connection with science. I worked in a lab studying fuel acquisition and models of intelligence. And so at the same time I was learning about meditation and practicing meditation, I also was beginning uh, to be interested in science. Fast forward, I spent many years kind of traveling and thought I would go back into uh, academic work, do PhD work in psychology, but then my life kind of got hijacked by meditation and, and Buddhism. I spent years in, in Asia, and then I went to Naropa University, and that was kind of a leap for me. I knew I wanted to do more education, but I also wanted to do something that was closer to my meditation practice. I went there, and I'm mentioning that because there was, in the program I did, it was a master's in Buddhist studies, and there, you could choose between this, I can't remember what it was called, it was like the contemplative religions track or the language track. The languages were either Tibetan or Sanskrit, and I thought, well, I don't know, Tibetan sounds kind of cool. I had like, no, I'm not a language person. I had like, I like, totally flunked out of Spanish, like in high school. I mean, I'm, I was like not a natural linguist by any stretch of the imagination. It was just, oh, that's kind of cool. Why don't I do that? So I studied Tibetan, didn't learn to speak there, but you know, learned some basics of grammar while I was in that program. Then I went back to Asia and thought I would do PhD work again, but this time in religious studies. So I had finished my master's. You know, If you're going to do PhD work in religious studies, you pretty much have to learn a few different languages. Usually it's two or three, actually. So I went back to study Tibetan more intensively in Asia. And then again, I got kind of hijacked by meditation and Buddhism and ended up staying for eight years living in Tibetan refugee settlements. I became quite fluent living over there, but I never thought I would be a translator. It was never an aspiration to be a translator. And honestly, I don't even think I really thought about it. And then I knew Tibetan teachers and then they started just asking me to translate. And it was, again, one of these things I like, well, okay, why not? And started translating these texts. People I know who've done this, they end up being with the Galupa teachers. It's so interesting that you somehow ended up with Dzogchen and Longchenpa. I'd <laughs> exactly. love to know how that happened. And that was actually one of the main motivations for me to learn Tibetan is one of my real hard teachers who I met when he was quite old is a, a, a teacher who has passed away a few years ago named Chacho Rinpoche. He was one of the great Dzogchen teachers, very reclusive, and I think something like more than 40 years in retreat in the mountains, I mean, really amazing meditation master. But he didn't speak any English. Nobody around him spoke any English. There was no real scene around him. But I made this connection with him and was quite fortunate to see him at a time when he was not seeing a lot of people. But it was pretty clear that if I wanted to practice under his guidance, I needed to learn Tibetan. So he gave me some transmissions to start doing some practices. And then I asked his daughter, who is his attendant, also a, a great teacher in her own right, how should I get the instructions? And she said, oh, go to his this student, Captain Tuku Rupeshe, and he'll teach you. And so I went there and he didn't speak any English. So I basically had to study my butt off for like seven months until I got fluent enough. Then I went back and 
received all these teachings and then went into retreat and practiced them. That was probably my my main motivation was really just to meditate and to practice with these great teachers I was meeting who didn't speak in English. So fortunate. Yeah. How did you meet Minjur Rinpoche? This is how I know you as a translator. And your translation is so beautiful. He doesn't let you do very much of it anymore. But back in 2009, you were doing a lot of translation back then. Yeah, there was a point where that was most of what I was doing was translating. And he somehow took me out of rotation. He made you jobless. He did. He's done that a number of times. So Mingyur Rinpoche, I met right around that same time where I had finished at Naropa. First, I went to India. I was in northeastern India near Sikkim, near in Darjeeling, actually. That's where I met Chato Rinpoche. And then maybe six months after that, I had moved to Kathmandu in Nepal. It's a really strange way to meet uh, one of the most important people in your life. I had rented a room in this house. I was sleeping in a sleeping bag and a foam mat. And I remember I had this desk that cost me like $5. You know, it was a great lesson for me because I really had nothing. And I was eating the simplest food, spending life. But I was never happier in my life in those years. But we didn't have any hot water. There's no hot water in Kathmandu in the winter in particular. It's not as cold as people think, but there's no indoor heating. There's no central heating like we're used to in the West. So it, it gets quite chilly and you have these big kind of cement type houses. So it feels even more cold. And at the time, there was a big hotel nearby that they had just built, a Hyatt. And they had some deal where you pay $20 a month and you could use their facilities. So I would go there from time to time just to take a shower and relax and just to thaw out a bit. And so that's actually where I met Mingir Bache. He didn't come to that area where I was staying, an area called Boda. He typically would stay on the other side of Kathmandu where his family is. He walked in, and I was where they have a hot tub and a sauna and a steam bath there. And Sokhti Rinpoche, his brother, who you know well, and Mingir Rinpoche walk in. I've never even heard of Mingir Rinpoche at this time, but I had met Sokhti Rinpoche in Boulder when I was in Naropa. But they walk in in towels. I didn't know Tsokhni Rinpoche particularly well. I mean, I'd only seen him that one night, but I thought, that looks a lot like Tsokhni Rinpoche. I don't know who that other guy is, but isn't that Tsokhni Rinpoche? I'm thinking to myself, and I was alone. I don't want to appear too clueless and just come out and ask him, like, are you Tsokhni Rinpoche? So I was trying to think of, like, clever questions that would reveal if he was Tsokhni Rinpoche. I said something like, oh, you know, what lineage do you practice? And he said, oh, I, I practice Drukpa Kagyu. And then I realized, well, I don't really know what lineage he is, like, I didn't need, so it didn't help me. <laughs> I now I know that that would have been a giveaway. But and then I said something, and then I think actually I asked him his name. But he said Tibetans all have like eighty names, so he told me Kirme Dorje or something like that. And I was like, okay, that's not helping either. And then we got talking, and at some point he asked me, well, what are you doing? And I said, I'm at Chukinima Rinpoche's monastery studying Tibetan. He looked at me, he said, oh, Chukinima Rinpoche, and you know he made like the crazy sign with his finger. And I thought, okay, only a younger brother could say that about like an esteemed <laughs> Tibetan teacher. So then I knew it was Tsokni Rinpoche. We hardly said a word to Mingyur Rinpoche, and he hardly said a word to me. I think Tsokni Rinpoche basically kind of made fun of me for like half an hour, and then the exchange ended. Months later, I was at that same monastery, at Chukinima Rinpoche's monastery in Kathmandu, and there was a bulletin board. I remember it very vividly. And somebody had posted a newsletter on the bulletin board. And in the newsletter, there was a, a short bio of Mingi Rinpoche. And I saw his picture. And that was the first time that, that I saw, oh, oh, that was the guy who was with Sokhni Rinpoche. And then I read about him. And it was a quite long. It was maybe like two pages or something. And it just told his 
remarkable story about having panic attacks. And, and I had a lot of anxiety as a kid. That was powerful for me to hear. And then all the retreat he did and interest in science, science of just what a, a remarkable person he is. And in particular, my interest in meditation and retreat is just my main heart connection. This young teacher who had already, you know, by the time he was 20, had spent almost 10 years in retreat. That was really inspiring. So immediately on the spot, I just started making aspirations. I remember just thinking, like, may I study with you in this lifetime? May I meet you? And the next day, I went back to the Hyatt, and he was there again by himself. I literally walked in the locker room, and he was sitting on a bench by himself in the locker room. We still talk about that now and then. It was, okay. This is weird. Have um, you ever told this story before? Not much. I've told a few people. Yeah, so it's not what people expect to hear when you're like, how did you meet your, uh, your main teacher? This is perfect. This is the ultimate modern Buddhist teacher-student story. Exactly. I met, never... met him in the steam bath at the Hyatt. Before or after, I've never seen him. I've never even known him to go to the Hyatt other than those two times. I'm sure he has, but I've never, not that I know of. He wasn't in Nepal much. He was mainly in India, and he would just come to see his, his family. Every time he would come, I would go see him, and I would always just say, is there anything I could do? Can I help with anything? You know, I'm learning Tibetan. If there's anything that would help with, let me know. And not only did he say no, but every single time I saw him, I remember there were people waiting to go in and see him, and they'd go in, and, and he would say, oh, great to see you again. He'd be, like, giving them hugs. How are your kids? How's the job? He, like, knew them so well. And every time I went in to see him, he'd say, oh, nice to meet you. Where are you from? And I'd say, yeah, I'm that American guy. I've actually met you many times. And literally every time he would say that. And it got to the point where I thought, oh, my God, I've just totally fabricated this fantasy in my mind of him being this important teacher for me. It was interesting. I experienced that also with Chato Rinpoche. And I've since kind of heard stories about that same thing with other teachers as well. But it was a really powerful teaching. There was no feeding the ego when I would see him. It was how interested are you? How committed are you? It was not until years after that, yeah, probably two or three years later that I received teaching. When I met him, it was 2000. So this was, and he had come to the U.S., I think in 98. So I didn't see him at that time. I was actually in Asia. Well, somehow he finally recognized you and decided you needed to actually be his translator <laughs> and work with him. He, he decided, yeah, this guy needs help. I don't know. I should, <laughs> should stop, stop messing with him and teach him how to meditate. Did you find much difference between the practice path of Dzogchen and your first teacher and the Mahamudra path? With Chaturabhaja, I never received Dzogchen teachings. I wish, I really wish I had. I did this very, very long Lindro practice, the foundational practices. It took me quite a long time to finish, and I was doing a series of retreats. And he is almost the opposite of Mingyurabhaja in that Mingyurabhaja teaches Mahamudra and Dzogchen quite early on in the path. Uh, and Chaturabhaja was the opposite. It was like you would do years and years and years of practice. And he was in his mid-90s, early 90s when I first met him. And he, he was 103 when he passed away. So he wasn't teaching that much. He would give transmissions and then he would send his students to a few of his very close students like Kepchen Tupu Rinpoche and another great teacher named Lopin Jigmi. I couldn't compare Mahamudra and Dzogchen. I did receive many Dzogchen teachings from other teachers. The Dzogchen translations I did were actually at the request of another one of my teachers, Dzogchen Pundaprapache, who asked me to translate a series of Dzogchen texts. Just a wonderful gift to be able to, to spend a few years focused on the reading Lulchenpa and translating these Dzogchen texts. Mahamudra and Dzogchen have always felt much more similar than different. I was exposed to both early on. 
In fact, when I was in Europa, I was studying Mahamudra with Dzogchen Pundabhrabhache. Also received some Dzogchen teachings uh, from him and from the Kempel Tsochum Gyamsa Rupache, another great teacher. So I was, from the beginning, receiving both Mahamudra and Dzogchen teachings. I'm glad to hear you say this because this has been my experience of Chatzog, which I think is a term mm. John Dunn once told me. Yeah. Um, when I told him, other than method, I really couldn't see much difference. He gave me the term Chatzog, which is this combination of Dzogchen and Mahamudra. Yeah. Almost all Kagyu teachers, almost all teachers in the Kagyu lineage also study and receive the Dzogchen teachings and, and, and teach them and pass them on. So in the Kagyu lineage, and I've practiced probably more formally in the Nyingma lineage, but in the, in the Kagyu tradition, which I very much have received a lot of teachings, and of course, Migi Rinpoche and Pondok Rinpoche and Kempo Tsochum Gyantso Rinpoche, who I mentioned, all of those teachers are hold both the lineages. 2010, I guess it was, when Minja Rinpoche announced that he'd made his commitment to be in the West for 10 years teaching and was ready to just leave. Yeah. I'm curious, were you thinking of going to the University of Wisconsin to do a PhD prior to him announcing that? Or when he announced it, did you say, that's a really good use of my time? It came up very much in conversation with him. I, I had actually known about his retreat a few years earlier, and he initially told me about it. I mean, it's why I love him. Commitment to deep practice. I was very happy that he was doing it and was very happy to do anything I could to support him while he was on retreat. Thought then and still think that it was also the best thing for his students and for the community as well. Just a great role model. In 2007, I think he had asked me to help him start the Tergar Institute, which was this two-month program we had for a number of years in Bodh Gaya, India, at his monastery there. And so we would have these periods there where I would usually go a month before the, the program started. At that time, nobody was there. It was at a time when he was there, family and a few monks, but not much going on. So we had this time just to talk and talk and talk. And so a lot of what's going on now in Tergar was actually just came out of those conversations we had. One of the things that he said very early on, he was telling me I, I should go get a PhD. It was also around that time, I think it was 2008, when he told me he wanted to do this long retreat. And the way he told it to me at the time was, it'll be at least three years. It could be five years. And there's a chance it might be even 10 years. So I was buckled in for like, who knows how long he's going <laughs> to he's gonna be gone for. It was clear that he, he himself didn't have a, a set plan. And that was the whole point. He was just going to go and, you know, until he was fully cooked. In fact, I remember exactly where we were. I was with the other Terragar instructors with uh, Tim Olmstead and Neoshin and Edward Kelly. And we were talking with Ribache, I think on Skype, but we were all together. And I asked him, well, okay, you've, told me all these things to do. Like, I think he had mentioned writing a book at one point. And of course, I was helping start Tergar, which was very new. This was, I think, in 2010, before he left, obviously. And I asked, what in your mind is the priority of all these things? And we talked about it with the other instructors as well. And I think we all felt that um, me going and doing a PhD would be helpful for Tergar. Rinpoche is very much wants to connect with people who are not already kind of diehard Buddhists and has this deep interest in science, as do I. Then there was a question of, well, what would I get a PhD in? I had been translator. I had published all these books. I already had a master's degree in Buddhist studies. I'm like, well, obviously I should just do it in religious studies. I've already done half the work, but why would I do it in anything else? And Rinpoche kept saying psychology. And I would nod politely, but inside was like, what? No, I'm not starting at the beginning. What are you talking about? 
So I actually, you, you brought up John Donne, who's a really great Tibetan scholar. And I pretty much had made up my mind to go study with him at Emory because he's a Buddhist studies scholar and also has this interest in science. So it seemed like the perfect fit. So I even went out there, met with him and with his now ex-wife, Sarah McClintock, who's also a great scholar. And pretty much it was a done deal. And then I went with Mingyur Rinpoche to a Mind and Life conference in Zurich. I had already knew uh, a scientist named Antoine Lutz, who has now become a really close friend of mine. At that time, I, I had just met him a few times. And he worked closely with Richie Davidson. And so he, at that conference, Richie was there and introduced me to Richie. And we got to know each other a little bit. And Richie at one point said, well, why don't you come to Wisconsin for your PhD? And I kind of said, well, why would I go to Wisconsin? There's like not much of a religious studies department. And Richie's very persuasive, as you know. Whatever he's talking about, you're immediately inspired. He invited me to come visit Center for Healthy Minds. It was at a time where there was just this amazing two-day conference, the leading scientists in the field of kind of meditation, mindfulness research were there for this very intimate discussion. And I was just there as an observer. There was no question what I was going to do after that meeting. Wow, this is just the coolest thing in the world. I'm coming here. And the funny thing is now John Dunn is here at the Center for Healthy Minds. So yes. it kind of got the best of both worlds. Was so profoundly grateful when the paper that you did that laid out all the different forms of meditation. I've been around the neuroscience of meditation for a long time, the psychology of mindfulness for a long time. I mean, even you and I were talking about this in 2010 yeah. on the month long, you know, how there needed to be some kind of practice path that actually had some meat in it. I was profoundly ecstatic when I heard you were going to do a PhD at the University of Wisconsin. Now, I think you're the only chief contemplative officer in the entire world, but I think every company should have one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Through the work we're doing at the center, working with a lot of uh, huge companies, and there's a lot of, you know, director of mindfulness. It is kind of remarkable how much this is getting into various sectors, including the business world. And there are now jobs for people who are just thinking about contemplative practices in relationship to whatever these organizations and uh, groups and communities are doing. Things are definitely changing. Why do you think it's important to understand the neurobiology of meditation? Well, I'm going to say something. Hopefully my uh, neuroscientist coworkers won't take this too personally. I think the research is important, not necessarily strictly on neurobiology. I think what's helpful is that even in the contemplative traditions, what we have is centuries and centuries of refinement of contemplative practices that has basically taken place at that kind of like the individual level and teachers and students and communities have refined them and passed them on. But I think what the scientific approach brings to that is a precision and a depth of understanding that's really hard to do that purely just through kind of trial and error, even with large groups of people over long periods of time. So the, the neurobiology piece of that, I think that there is something that can be very helpful. It's kind of a window into the mind. When you think about the brain, the challenge I think is where we are right now historically with the evolution of neuroscience. Say we're at the beginning of understanding the brain is an understatement. I mean, we just understand so little, actually, of what's going on in the brain. But even given what, what we do know, I think it can be helpful in helping to better understand the psychological dynamic of a specific meditation practice. What exactly is going on? What's happening in experience? Why would we even do it? How is it affecting various processes in the body? You know, like the stress response is just an obvious one. So these practices are not only to wake us up, but they also have profoundly more 
kind of mundane benefits. I mean, they do hopefully make us less emotionally reactive and less stressed out and less caught up in our limited ideas and beliefs about who and what we are. Understanding the brain, and I would say not just the brain, but looking at the entire body, the whole human organism, including the mind, including the emotional dynamics, including the nervous system, etc. These are all systems that are interrelated. And if you're interested in one, in a way, you kind of have to be interested in the whole thing because they all influence one another. They all shape one another and none of them exists independent of the others. So in a way, the more complete the understanding, even if you're just interested in meditating and training the mind or whatever you're interested in, even purely from that point of view, the question of why would that matter, that's part of your experience. And to whatever degree we don't understand that, it's just going to be a black box. Our lack of understanding is going to make it difficult to work with in a skillful way. I think that's one thing that I appreciate about the Vajrayana path is the integrative view. The clinical view that I have is completely integrative with the nervous system and the organismic mechanisms. Mind is not separate. Body is not separate. And I think it's probably appropriate for me to ask you whether or not you think there's a difference learning these practices in a completely secular mindfulness-based stress reduction class or following a practice path in which it's a more integrative view of not just the practice itself, but why you're practicing. I think that one thing in Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism is you're just not practicing for you. You're practicing because there's this mass of suffering and we can have an effect in a very profound way on that suffering. So I'm wondering what you think about all of that. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. Actually, a very timely question for the work that we're doing now. You mentioned early on this program we've been working on. It was actually initially part of my PhD dissertation, this Healthy Minds program. I mentioned it because one of the things that we're doing with the program is it has a scientific component, not just teaching about science, measuring different aspects of psychological health, you could say, and then just seeing how different practices impact those. One of the interesting things, and this is brand new, this is nothing we published yet. We probably won't publish it for quite some time. We're using different kinds of measurement, but one of them is just the very common uh, self-report questionnaires. So, you know, just asking people questions about related to different aspects of uh, mental well-being. It's grouped on this framework we have, what we call kind of like the four ingredients of a healthy mind, which are awareness, connection, insight, and purpose, because the practices are kind of targeting these four. And some of them have not really been studied. So insight, for example, has not really been studied very much. So we've been developing a program that we can both teach people to do it, but also measure it. So there's a big blind spot in scientific literature around this whole area, which in contemplative traditions is is vitally important, maybe arguably the most important piece. We just created this draft measure that gets at these four qualities, one of which being is insight. And we've been validating the measure. So we're just at the early stages of this. And it's been fascinating to do. One of the first things we saw is that some of the other areas, like those related to interpersonal connections, for example, or meaning and purpose in life, and even the awareness module, which relates to things like mindfulness and attention and so forth, there are these very clear relationships with other well-being-related measures. But with the insight one, it was not so strong. We thought, there were certain groups of questions within that that were very clearly related to physical health and psychological health. But there were other questions 
and in particular questions related to self-inquiry that were not related to these things. So we kind of stepped back and thought, hmm, that's interesting. What's going on there? And it relates to your, your question because uh, Palin Kasebier is a really brilliant scientist who works at the center and was spearheading this effort. She, she asked me about that. She said, well, do you think we should just drop these self-inquiry questions? And I said, well, no, I think that's actually a vital part of the practice. And then she said, well, you know, what do you think is going on then? I said, you know what? I bet you anything that there is some kind of interaction going on with purpose, with the questions, with a sense of a path and a sense of purpose in life. And that if you have strong self-inquiry skills, and if it's related and you also have a strong sense of purpose and personal values, I bet they're much more strongly correlated with these well-being measures. But if you don't, if you don't have a strong purpose and you're questioning yourself or questioning your experience, that it might actually have a more negative impact. And that's exactly what we found. This is a very roundabout way of answering your question, but I think that the view you bring to the practice, and this is a scientific question we're very interested in, but my hunch is that it's as important and probably, I would say, more important than the techniques. And what that view is, what that perspective is, and what the motivation you bring to the practice is, I think has a profound impact. I don't think it's a matter of MBSR versus other approaches that have a clear path. I think so much probably depends on the teacher and how they're teaching it. Because I know some MBSR teachers who very much bring in a lot of these elements and others, presumably where that might not be the case. Mm-hmm. But I would say that sense of perspective is, I think, vitally important. And we're building this Healthy Minds program so we can actually study things like that. We can actually see what happens when somebody gets a healthy dose of the view, meaning things that are going to shift their perspective. But maybe they're not meditating. Maybe they're not sitting down and on the cushion and doing a lot of practice. And other people who might be doing a lot of meditation but not with a lot of instruction on the view, just like watching the breath and things like that, but without these things that might get you to question why you're doing things or your motivation and so so forth. So these are all scientific questions that I think are quite open at this point, but ones that we're very interested in at the center. But I really like this. I've been bored with the discussion around meditation practices versus Buddhism, and they're not the same. I'm so excited that the Center for Healthy Minds is going on this journey around motivation and commitment, the principles of why you would practice in the Buddhist path in the first place, Mm -hmm. the view, which of course is a term from Dzogchen and Mahamudra, but also from, I think, the Buddhist teachings. The entire Pali text is just, here's the view, here's the way it is, go find out for yourself. Yeah. And it's very much right in line, actually, with a lot of scientific research. In the world of research on well-being, the most obvious research is about meaning and purpose related to everything from more obvious things like just how satisfied you are with your life, but also how the body ages, physical health, the immune system. When you have a very narrow self-interest and it's just about feeling better, that's certainly better than not having any motivation at all to make a change or to explore your experience. But having an altruistic motivation and being called to a a sense of purpose beyond one's own self-interest, the science is very clear on the impact that has on one's sense of well-being and various aspects of well-being. And actually, I'd say you've definitely dropped a level deeper 
right now resilience seems to be the new mindfulness. So I feel like Mm -hmm. it's not just picking one thing and saying, go do this. It's saying, go to some depth in terms of relationality with humanness. You will be able to inspire these qualities without having to pick one thing and say, go cultivate that because that's going to make it easier for you to work 12 hours a day or do whatever it is you do that probably isn't part of the view anyway. There's so many ways to kind of go with this. And one of the challenges with the research is that the, the nature of research is such that normally the way it, it works is you pick some very narrowly defined topic to make tractable research question usually needs to be very specific. You know, you need to be able to target something and then study that one little thing. And you see this a lot in positive psychology. What then oftentimes happens is maybe there's a study that says, oh yeah, if you do this, there's this positive impact from that. And then there's an impulse to then kind of construct some sort of practice about that. But these things were initially usually drawn from something much broader and deeper. So it kind of gets extracted out of that and then it gets researched, which is that's all good. But then everything else is kind of forgotten about it. And you're just left with like this one little thing and forgetting that actually, no, it was part of that much wider landscape. And so, you know, in the world of positive psychology, you have all these things like, well, just keep a gratitude journal or list your strengths every day. And yeah, that's better than if you didn't do that at all. But it's kind of forgetting that whether you're a positive psychologist who's looking at the roots of Western psychology and philosophy, where you have thinkers like Plato and Aristotle, who are, you know, have this very expansive view of human nature and well-being and virtue. And and it just gets very narrowly defined. So we're definitely trying to do something much broader and not lose that. It's very challenging scientifically because it's kind of playing the long game and it's not just getting this very narrowly defined targeted result. So we'll see how it goes. We're fortunate with Richie because he's at a place in his career where he can be kind of bold and audacious and not <laughs> he doesn't have to worry about publishing anymore. I understand now being part of that world why they do it that way. Frankly, it's it's just much more manageable to actually make progress in, in understanding. And science is very almost excruciatingly incremental in nature, yes. much as we would like it to be otherwise. I think you said you needed to go. So I do, yes. We'll have to do this again. Thank you. <laughs> Honored that you included me. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. The Groundless Ground podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. To find out more about this episode, see a list of upcoming guests, or get in touch, visit groundlessground.com. Now let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.